people have opinions without being fully informed. Trust me, I'm a Canadian here. I don't care if you're a Christian, Messianic, or Hebrew roots. I want to know if your theology is biblical. Maybe I'm right. Of course I'm right. If you're going to cite a source, be responsible. You know, cite your source. Your longest college. Hey, we're just having a conversation. There's only 36 people listening anyway, right? You can Google it. Wow, at what point does history matter? At what point does truth matter? An alien invasion. Is it biblical? Of course it is. Look, there's a way to do scholarship and a way not to do scholarship. you got to set your source. Who's your source? My best friend's sister's boyfriend's brother's girlfriend heard from this guy who knows his kid is going with the girl. And that about sums it up. What up and shalom, welcome to the Rob and Caleb Show, the show where theology matters, scholarship counts, and theology matters. My name is Caleb Haig, with me of course Rob Van Hoff. What up Rob, how's it going? Hola. Uh, yeah, so for those who might, uh, if you're on the radio, everything should be working just fine. If you're not, if you're out there in YouTube land, you might have to refresh refresh that, uh, that uh, YouTube page uh, and you might be able to see it. Um, anyway, so, uh, man, there's so much to talk about. I don't even know. I mean, we should just jump right in, I guess, right? I mean, last week we had the Passover special with Dr. Brant Petrie. What an amazing special that was, by the way. For the, If you missed it, go back and watch it. That was just so much fun. It was, it was so good to see. Got some good good uh, feedback from people. Over 3,000 views. People we've never heard from before who probably yeah. Yeah. you know never listened to us before sending us like really encouraging email um and what is really cool is what one thing that came across to me caleb is people were appreciative of how we assisted him in getting his point right to get to his kind of his get him in his in his in his strengths you know in his passion and helping him uh communicate that well it helps that i agree with him on his passover hypothesis <laughs> so that made it well that made it a yeah, lot easier you know, right? i mean we're, we're, we don't want we're not trying to interview people that we're just severely wanting to debate with, you know? Yeah, no doubt. Trying to steer, you know, we all have a limited amount of time and resources. No doubt. Uh, We need to, to learn how to focus on what is good. And as much as sometimes, you know, we do talk about what to avoid as well. By the way, I, you know, I, I just want to get this out of the way. So we're trying something new, and we've been trying new things every week for the past couple of weeks. So it's probably getting annoying, especially to the people in iTunes and the people, uh, you know, listening live on the radio. But at the same time, I got the chat room going. I know that there's a chat on on YouTube as well. Um, but if levels need to change, you know, I'm producing this whole show basically on my own on the fly. So if uh, I can't see what it, I can't hear what it's like out there. So if uh, something needs to change. Uh, Gary or Michael, just shoot me a, a message in the chat room. Um, speaking of of <laughs> producing, check this out. Somebody contacted me yesterday, said, uh, asked me if my father, Tim Haig, has ever done debates. And uh, the answer to that is no. My father has never done a debate before. But uh, he suggested that my father go on to a podcast called Unbelievable. Now, normally I don't I don't like to promote other people's podcasts a lot, especially because you never know the content, right? You never, you're not listening to other people's podcasts enough to actually listen to the content, and all, all that kind of stuff. But I started listening to this podcast, Unbelievable. <clears throat> this guy is brilliant. He, 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 all he does is he, uh, he creates a platform for debate between Christians and non-Christians. 
And I mean, he's got all the heavy hitters. N.T. Wright is on a lot. James White is on a lot. I mean, you name it. He's had him on. And uh, so he's never had a debate over the Sabbath or over whether or not believers should uh, be keeping Torah. And so this person said, hey, you should have, we should tell him to, you know, because he's always asking for new debate topics and for people to debate. And so he's going to uh, send in and have my my uh, my my father, uh, his name put into the pool of people that should uh, debate. Okay, let's let's get going. Uh, now we we referenced uh, Petrie's uh, special, the the show that we had last week with Petrie's uh, Dr. Petrie on. We'll get back to that in just a second. I want to bring uh, just a couple of things up. Check this out. Um, I don't know if you got this. Rob, did you get this? It's uh, Jets for those who uh, aren't looking online. This is the, uh, we get this, what, uh, is it once a month? This is volume 60, number one of Jets. That's the Journal of the Evangelical I don't know if it Theological up, Society, uh, March 2017. This is That's what this one is. Uh, man, cool. this one is excellent. Uh, a Peculiar Glory, How the Christian Scriptures Reveal Their Complete Truthfulness by John Piper. Medieval Manuscripts and Modern Evangelicals, Lessons from the Past, Guidance from the Future, Daniel Wallace. A Review of Brant Petrie, Jesus in the Last Supper. The Bible. I, I didn't I didn't see who it was by. Oh, it doesn't oh. say. The Bible and the Trinity in Recent Thought, Review Analysis and constructive proposal scott swain i mean it just goes on and on you know and this is more not to uh, gloat over the fact that i'm getting good journals from the uh, ets rather it's to encourage you know we're uh we're about seven months out from this year's um this year's evangelical theological society and society of biblical literature uh rob van hoff my good co-host here is going to be presenting two lectures at this year's sbl uh, the society that is the Society of Biblical Literature for those who don't know. Woot, woot. Woot, woot. It's in November, um, and it's uh, it's going to be in Boston this year. Uh, the the ETS, the Evangelical Theological Society, will be in Rhode Island, and uh, the Society of Biblical Literature will be in Boston. You know, um, if you are somewhere around that area, and uh, you know you you think you would be interested in uh, in going. I would highly recommend maybe becoming a member of the ETS or the SBL just so that you can get the discount and go to, uh, go to the, uh, uh, the, the, the annual meeting. It is well worth it. It's worth there, the yeah, money. There's more there than you're going to be able to absorb for sure. Oh, I mean, yeah. that's just, we're always confronted with that issue of, oh, do I go see this speaker or that speaker? Well, and Michael, Michael will tell you, Michael, our, our, uh, our graphic arts designer here, a Torah resource, you know, his story of kind of going to the SBL for the first time, he'll tell you, like the first day he didn't really realize what was going on. You know, it was kind of a whirl. <laughs> like, what? <laughs> yeah. And then all of a sudden, by the end of the day, it was like, oh, he got it. Like this, now he, it's the big boys, you know, like you don't present something unless you're ready to defend it, you know, cause all the greatest scholars in the world are there. Anyway, that, that's a plug for, and we're not associated with, with them with either of those groups. Uh, so, you know, we have nothing to gain for promoting this except for that we think, I think that... Uh, well, we're members. We're members, yeah, but, uh, but my mean, point... We're, mem- we're members of the group, but... They're not um, They're not sending this show any money. That's what I'm saying. Yeah, yeah. Right, okay, yeah. In terms of the Rob and Caleb show. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, basically, I just think that our a, a good amount of our listeners who are worried about uh, deeper scholarship, archaeological findings, these kind of things, uh, you know, textual criticism... 
those kind of things. They're going to, uh, I think they would probably uh, really enjoy, it's like Disneyland. It's like Disneyland for, for scholars. It's, it really is. It's, it's a lot of fun. Okay, let's move on. We got so much to get to today. This is going to be a long show, I can tell already. Um, let me get to my show notes. Let's start with, now I know, Rob, that you have a clip, but we're going we're gonna to save that for a little bit. Okay, let's let's uh, first tell everyone uh, and check this out. Uh, for those, uh, once again, I know that a lot of people are listening on iTunes and uh, live on the radio, so this is not going to benefit you at all. But um, let's see here. Let's just say that uh, the, the Rob and Caleb Show is brought to you by torresource.com and uh for I, rob can't even see this oh i already got a label up there man i already got a label you don't even have to do okay, that well i'm just doubling it with the mug well yeah yeah yeah. but your mug is annoying <laughs> i'm playing you gave playing. it to me i know i know i know um okay so uh brought to you by torresource.com go to torresource find all sorts of free stuff uh and you know somebody uh somebody wrote in today and said uh, how dare you guys sell your materials i just like to tell you if you if you're looking for it, every single one of our material uh, materials is presented for free at some point on our website. Usually when it first comes out. Okay. Anyway, also uh, give us a call. We have a comment line, and we'd love to hear your comments. You don't have to talk to us. Just leave us a comment. You can tell us how much you hate us, love us, agree, disagree, whatever. It's two five three four six five thirty two zero five. That's two five three four six five thirty two zero five. And uh, you can follow us on Twitter as well. Rob is at Rob Van Hoff, and I am at Caleb Hegg. Okay, that's about it. That's all the that's all the uh, fun little logos that I have for people that are actually watching. Okay, and I will bring those up throughout the uh, throughout the show. Okay. So last week we talked with Dr. Petrie, and I think that a lot of people enjoyed that show. Really got to, uh, uh, well, yeah, just enjoy enjoy hearing uh, the the wonderful um, the, the wonderful knowledge that Dr. Petrie has. Even though you know, and obviously, uh, Dr. Petrie is a is a Catholic, so Rob and I disagree with him on on many things. Um, but that's not the point. Uh, we agreed with him on this uh, for the most part. And of course, I one of the things I certainly do not want to do right now is uh, attack Dr. Petrie in any way without him here to be able to defend himself. However, I do want to clarify something, and the clarification is, uh, you know, he went into uh, his his theory on the Talmud. I didn't feel like it was uh, the right time to challenge him on his uh, on his uh, views of Sanhedrin. What is it, eighty eighty two A or what? What's the reference? Well, the reference to, um, yeah, the reference to the death penalty. I want to say 42A, but I don't remember. Yeah, it's something like that. Anyway. Um, but and, it's, it's the one that says uh, the person named Yeshu was was hung, is the verb, on on the eve of Passover. Yeah, and a herald went out for 40 days. Yeah, he was a sorcerer. And, uh, and so Dr. Petrie, uh, the way that he gets around this, well, I shouldn't say that he gets around it, but the way that he addresses this portion of Talmud is that he says, well, it's uh, obvious that, uh, that um, you know, it's not talking about Yeshua of Nazareth. And, uh, and he's, the, he's right in, in this regard, that it's not an accurate <laughs> depiction. Yeah. Yeah. They're not accurately portraying. But uh, – I would say that if you look at the manuscript tradition and the reception of this Talmudic story in the Middle Ages, like with Rashi and, and, on, and on, they believed it was Jesus of Nazareth that it was being talked about. Well, but even today, you'll, but there will be Jewish, Jewish rabbis today say, oh, that's not talking about Yeshua of Nazareth. 
Well, the interest, like the, yeah, interestingly, though, uh, and we've talked about this on, on the show before. This is kind of uh, beyond the point. But, you know, we've talked about uh, different passages in the Talmud about Yeshua. And this is one of those passages that originally in the uh, in the oldest manuscripts that we have actually did say uh, Yeshua of Nazareth or Yeshua the Nazarite. Uh, and, and that was taken out because why? And we've talked about this, obviously, because the Pope uh, was not yeah, very happy the, about it. Right. The the censoring of the Talmud. Yeah, in, they were burn they were burning Talmuds. They were burning the Talmud left and right, right, um, and, and censoring it. Yeah, well. exactly. Um, and so uh, this actually sparked some conversation between Robin and myself on the Quattrodeciman debate, because it, obviously in this uh, in this passage of Talmud it says that he was hung on the fourteenth of Nisan, and obviously uh, Rob and I believe, as does Dr. Petrie, that he actually was crucified on the 15th of Nissan. Um, anyway, anyway uh, so really what And this you have, if I might add a footnote there, Caleb, you have excellent scholars like Peter Schaefer, who used to be at Princeton, now he's, he's uh, retired, who wrote Jesus in the Talmud, came out, sure. you know, what, 10 years, 5, 10 years ago. Yeah. Um, and he gets into this, but his assumption is, he because Schaefer comes to the... The, looking at all the manuscript evidence from the Babylonian Talmud concerning this passage and others that seem to have to do with Jesus of Nazareth, sure, he's coming with the assumption that of uh, uh, Jeremiah's reading and the others who say that John is a different chronology. So Peter Schaefer, an excellent Talmud scholar, uh, comes to read with the assumption, reading the Talmud passage with the assumption of the critical text scholars that are pitting John against the synoptics, and then he's assuming, oh, they had a gospel of John, and that's how they got this story. Yeah, yeah, and and, and actually, I I, I we can't that we're having we need to how can we prove that? That's the thing. Well, we can't prove it, but the, but my right. point is is that I think that that uh, the the, uh, the 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 people who are uh, redacting the Talmud. And uh, and telling this story within the Talmud, I think that that's exactly what they're doing. I think they're actually reading John. Um, anyway, but this brought us or back. Or misreading. They're misreading. Yeah, thank you. They're misreading John. Exactly. Uh, and more specifically, John 19. Um, this brings us to uh, a quote that we found. Um, and so the, the question, and this is kind of off topic of our topic today, but we're, we're going to go through this really quickly. Um, and maybe this will be fun for some people. Uh, so the Quattrodeciman debate or the 14ers, um, there was this debate whether or not Easter, and when they say Easter, they mean the celebration of the resurrection. This is what they're talking about. And and ultimately, uh, the death of the Messiah. So Lent was for 40 days before, uh, and it would end on the day that, that Yeshua would die according to the church, okay? And at this point, you don't really have, it's too early, uh, you don't have... Uh, definite lines of the Catholic Church, uh, you know, the Roman Catholic Church as it is now or anything like that, okay? <clears throat> so the question kind of uh, comes to be, why was this debate happening between the Quattrodecimans, that is the people who believe that he died on the 14th, and the what I would consider at that time the universal church or the universal, um, you know, and, and not Catholicism as we think of it today, but really what would be called the Catholic Church. Um, okay, so uh, this is what I found, um, and so this uh, you can find the link to this in your show notes. Uh, this is from 
uh, now I'm going to mispronounce. Hang on, I'm going to come out of this. I'm going to mispronounce his name. Uh, it's not Polycrates. I know that's how you. Every, it's uh, uh, anyway. Yeah. So every, a lot of people call him Polycrates, but if you uh, if if you speak Greek or Latin or whatever, it's certainly not Polycrates. Yeah. There you go, Polycrates. So uh, this is uh, Polycrates. He's writing. This is about 190. Uh, so quite a long time after the events of the of the Last Supper and the and the death of the Messiah, and um, and he is a student of Polycarp. And Polycarp claimed to be well. People claim that Polycarp was a disciple of John. Whether or not he was a disciple of John or not, no one really knows. All he claim, all I can find that he claims is that he had met John at one time. I can't find that he was actually a disciple of John. Uh, maybe that he tried to follow John's teachings, but uh, that he actually uh, followed John around and knew his teachings, that I think could be debated. But I don't know. I'm, I'm not, I haven't studied this history well enough. And actually, I, I mean, uh, there are people within the chat room, I think, that, that probably uh, know this better than I do. Anyway, so this is, uh, th- this is a letter to uh, Ivan in Rome or uh, – I forget who in Rome. Anyway, Victor, Victor, there we go. Victor in Rome and the Catholic church in Rome. So he says, why need I mention the bishop and martyr Sagaris who fell asleep in Leodosia? And then he goes on and mentions a number of other people uh, waiting uh, the Episcopal of heaven when, when he shall rise from the dead. Why, so in other words, why should I mention these people? Verse six, all these observe the 14th day of the Passover, according to the gospel, deviating in no respect, but following the rule of faith. And I also, uh, Polycrates, the least of you all, do according to the tradition of my relatives, some of whom I have closely followed. For seven of my relatives were bishops, and I am the eighth. And my relatives always observe the day <clears throat> when the peop- uh, people put away the leaven. And when the, uh, this is uh, now down several verses, I skipped some, okay, for those watching this on a screen. <clears throat> and when the blessed Polycarp was at Rome in the time of Anicetus, and they disagreed a little about certain other things, they immediately made peace with one another, not caring to quarrel over this matter, for neither could an, uh, Anicetus persuade Polycarp not to observe what he had always observed with John, the disciple of our Lord, and the other apostles with whom he had associated. Neither could Polycarp persuade Anicetus to observe it as he said, that he ought to follow the customs of the presbyters that had preceded him. Okay, so what's the point here? Obviously, so there, there's that phrase though, Caleb, where he says uh, uh, that Polycarp could not be dissuaded from observing what he had always observed with John. Yeah. So this is one of those texts that people say, well, it shows that it wasn't just a meeting once. It seems that Polycarp uh, participated in Passover, celebrate pa- Pesach, what we call later a Seder, right? A Passover dinner with John the Apostle. It seems like that's what Eusebius is saying. Yeah. Yeah. Right? That that Polycarp actually kept you know, was invited over, or maybe, you know, they went to the to the same to share the Seder, which is really cool to imagine, you know. Oh yeah. Um, so but 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 Polycrates, he, he's even then he's he's uh he's disassociated from this a little bit, right? He's still a generation. Yeah, there's back. some there's some generations going by. So uh, obviously, you don't have to take our word for this. I would encourage everyone to. I mean, we. I looked at this for a better half of yesterday, and uh, I, I didn't find 
a whole lot. Uh, so uh, certainly this is not a definitive answer in any way, shape, or form. But in a way, what's 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 it functioning for Eusebius? Is this to say, well, uh, this is an example of brothers who are not going to argue about something. Yeah. But one of the things that doesn't come up, one thing that Eusebius doesn't get into is the idea of commandment, um, you know, Torah of Moses. You know, it does. He doesn't say, you know, here's the scriptural support that uh, Polycarp pulled out, right? It, he's not getting into the weeds of of that. He's just saying that these two guys met and they thought that they were going to choose a different battle. Okay, so moved on. So I, I'm going to uh, just go now to Roger T. Beckwith, who's a giant of a scholar. For those who don't know. Uh, he wrote this great book called Calendar and Chronology, Jewish and Christian, Biblical Intertestamental inter and pra uh, Patristic Studies. This is an excellent book. If you, uh, if you ever want a fun read, this is, this is one of them. Very heady, but uh, if you like church history, this is a good one. Uh, because it talks about calendars and all sorts of different uh, other things. This is on page 59. He gives, uh, what, 10 reasons or so something on, on why uh, this this doesn't make a whole lot of sense that Polycrates would be, uh, would be, uh, celebrating on the 14th. So he, and, and he's not, Beckwith is not attempting to, uh, try to reconcile anything. He's not trying, you know, he's just trying to look at evidence. That's all he's trying to do. Um, so, so and just to, we, maybe we should clarify one other thing here is that the word that Eusebius is using is Pascha and he's saying it's, they're celebrating it on the 14th of Nisan. Yeah. He's not saying this is a that in this context. He's not saying that John or Polycarp or Polycrates were saying this is a resurrection or celebration or even marking the day of the crucifixion. He's not saying those. He's it's clearly up in my view, just saying this is a 14th of Nisan Passover meal. And, and, goes all, you know. Yes, but 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 it, it seems to me that what he's saying is that that the celebration of Lent would end at this day. Now, it, traditionally in the church, later in the church, the, this was the day that uh, Lent ended, the day that Yeshua died. Anyway, take yeah, that. that's a that's a tradition that comes later. Okay, yeah, and so it, it should also be noted that uh, Beckwith here is using the word Easter to denote the resurrection day. Which adds a little bit of fuzziness because we're not sure when is he talking about uh, like a Passover meal on the 14th versus... Okay, yeah. so th this is what Beckwith says. Then, when Easter Sunday had grown in importance, the Christians of Asia may have decided to make the commemoration of Christ's death and resurrection more exact by moving uh, it to the day, the very day of the Jewish Passover. They would not have done this under Jewish influence, for though this existed in their province, it was by no means a strong, as strong as in Palestine, uh, Palestine or Syria, and the estrangement between church and synagogue was very, was very marked, and then he gives uh, several references. Nor could Jewish Christians whom Paul permitted to observe Jewish festivals privately, reference Roman 14.5, have taken over the churches of Asia, where they would not have been sufficiently numerous. Rather, the change would have been made at the prompting of important Gentile Christian leaders like Polycarp, Bishop of Smyrna, the earliest quadradeciman uh, to whom we can put a name, whose purpose would have been edification, not obedience to the Jewish law. 
Yeah. Can we pop? Yep. Is that the end of that sentence? That's the end of the sentence, but I'm going to okay. keep going. Okay, just if we pause right there. Mm -hmm. What Roger Beckwith seems to be saying, he's making the argument that, that yes, yes, there were early church people observing the 14th of Nisan as a Pascha. Yes. He's saying, but at the time that was instituted, it, it doesn't go all the way back to the first century, but, uh, or like it doesn't go all the way back to Paul. What it comes back, what it happened is, is there was already a divide between, quote, church and synagogue, and the church people, predominantly Gentiles, had a leader, Gentile leader, leader uh, Polycarp, who then instituted it, not because of influence or pressure from Jews or because of the idea that this is a commandment in the Torah of Moses, but rather to edify the community. Yes. Is that what he's, which is a strange position to make. It looks like, in other words, I'm going to edify the community by doing something that's a commandment, but we're not going to call it a commandment. I don't think he thinks it's a commandment. I'm sorry. Maybe I didn't understand your question right. I think what he's saying is edification in terms of, and, and this is basic, I'll tell you the end of the beginning. My, my thought is this, that, that Polycarp, if he is the one who changed it, if Polycarp is the one who, who uh, moved, because... Basically, what Beckwith actually let's finish this quote real quick because I, I just okay. want to get through it real quick, and then then uh, we can I'll, I'll give you what I where my mind is here on this. He he goes on. Yet even this reconstruction is open to one serious objection. If Easter Sunday was of a apostolic origin, the fact can hardly have been unknown to Polycarp, who had been brought up as a Christian and whose long life began about A.D. sixty-nine. Oh man, I can't say it. Arrhenius, there we go, had heard him say that he had met St. John. This would readily explain why the quadradecimans supposed that Polycarp's quadradeciman practice went back to the apostles. But it would not explain why Polycarp himself thought that considerations of edification required him to alter practice, which was already edifying and which he knew to be apostolic. It is much yes. more likely that he knew Easter to be a recent post-apostolic development and therefore deemed it open to whatever change he judged suitable. See, I, I, I to me, it, that, that's a confused way to look at it. So th this, is, uh, this is what I'm, maybe I'm misreading back I, I, am, I, I would say this. I would say there's no reason to think <clears throat> that Polycarp didn't know the Gospels and didn't know that the resurrection was on the first day of the week. Okay, we're going to assume that, assume that. Now, for him to institute the 14th of Nisan, however, is, is to institute, and this is even, Eusebius gets into this, is that it can fall on any day of the week. It could be, right, it could be, uh, the 14th of Nisan could be on a Sunday, a Monday, a Tuesday, right? It could be on any of the days of the week, depending on the, the lunar yeah, but uh, but, that, but I I think the reason he's doing it for edification is because he's trying to line up the uh, the the so you have this feast at the end of of Lent, and I think he's trying to if if it is Polycarp who changed it, I think the reason why whoever changed it, if if but change what to what, the, so they were celebrating they were celebrating the resurrect or the the uh, they always celebrated the end of Lent on a Friday. See that's where we're that that's where that's where I'm not tracking. Why? Because that. How do we know that that's that that was 
a tradition for Polycarp that Lent ha- that he even had this tradition. It, 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 well, we don't. We know that it was a Polycarp. For, it, that we know that it was a tradition for everyone else. In this letter, that's exactly what he says. He specifically says, "No, the presbyters have always celebrated it on Sunday." So, in other words, the tradi- the way that I see it is that the tradition was was that resurrection the resurrection was always celebrated on a Sunday every year it came around, at least for for the people in Rome, right? For the people in Rome, and uh, what and Polycarp is saying, no, no, we need to celebrate it on the fourteenth of Nisan because that's when the feast that's when Yeshua had the feast. So they end Lent on the on the fourteenth. And then we then we celebrate the re- resurrection two days later. I think that's what he's saying. Yeah, it's it's kind of confused. I, I it, the way that Eusebius describes it because it's. I want to say what what are the facts? The facts that it, if there are any facts here, I would say that it, there's early believers that are keeping the fourteenth of Nisan. Beckwith is trying to say well. Uh, it doesn't go all the way back to the apostles. It's an innovation. So, in other words, Beckwith is saying that if there are, if we just accept that, that as true, hypothetically, that there are uh, believers in Yeshua who are celebrating the 14th of Nisan and they're calling it Pascha, without even reference to the resurrection, and they're celebrating this, and they're Jewish believers in Yeshua, or not, not even necessarily Jewish, there's believers in Yeshua, because obviously there's Gentiles doing this, which is an important side note. But Beckwith is saying, if they're doing that, it doesn't go all the way back to the apostles. But how can he prove? How do basically Beckwith is saying there's no continuity? Like there were a bunch of years where there were no believers in Yeshua observing the 14th of Nisan. Actually, and I'm like, okay, wait, 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 uh, no, 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 wait, 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 wait. You uh, no, now, now you need to read the book because he has a whole section right before that on how Ju- uh, Christians were celebrating Passover late. So he's just talking about in Asia Minor. Yes. He's saying, okay, so he's not talking about down in like Palestine. Or, Correct. Or, or, Correct. He's okay. So that's helpful. So yeah, I haven't, I haven't read the book. So anyway, so I, okay, we, we've spent way too much time on this, but I hope, you know, this is a good conversation. I just hope that it, it kind of shows that, you know, these are the fun kind of things we get to wrestle with, right? Uh, and, and it's certainly, I mean, I would love to hear comments on, on what our listeners think is going on in all this. Okay, let's move on because I know we've spent a lot of time on this, and I do want to move on. Um, okay. Let's see here. So I do have a comment. Now, the, the main topic that we have to get to, remember, we had this comment from someone who wrote in saying that she had some friends who were Jewish. Um, I don't know if they were anti-missionaries or not. It seems like that might have been uh, the case. But um, uh, they, they wrote in about uh, Mark 14, 27, and 28. And uh, I want to get to that today. That is something we absolutely have to get to. And so we will at some point, okay? Um, but let's keep going with our initial <laughs> our initial thoughts here. Um, okay, so we do have an email from someone. And let's bring this up. Okay, I'll read this email. This was on uh, show 167, co- a comment on one. Oh, I'm sorry. This is a comment on show 168. Um, and this was by someone named Lewis. Uh, and Lewis says, I listened to the debate between Mr. Haig and Mr. Michael Brown. And he's talking about this thing uh, when my father went on to Michael Brown's show two years ago. It was specifically set up not as a debate. So, uh, I mean, not that, my, not that this Lewis knows that, but 
Um, anyway, uh, there Dr. Brown challenged Mr. Hegg about rabbinical authority and the traditions of men. Okay, I went back and I tried to listen to it. I didn't have the whole hour or whatever to listen to the entire interview. I skimmed through it. I I don't that certainly was not the focus of the of the uh, conversation. Um, but um, I, I nonetheless, that's okay, let's keep going. So I I, I struggled trying to find exactly what he's talking about. Um, but anyway, the traditions are men. Okay, so he says his point was you cannot pick and choose from the rabbis and submit to some traditions. I don't know if this is really what Dr. Brown was saying or not. If it was what Dr. Brown was saying, which I still don't think it is, but that's ridiculous. The idea that we can't pick and choose from rabbinical tradition uh, goes against rabbinical tradition. <laughs> the tradition is, is that ask your local rabbi. There's no one tradition that is set by, by the overall. If you're, if you want to, uh, say the Shema and, uh, once a day instead of three times a day, but your rabbi tells you to do the Shemoneus three, three times a day, that's what you do. If your rabbi says you can open your computer on Shabbat, you can open your sh computer on Shabbat. There is no, tr like the idea that this tradition is monolithic is ridiculous. And we've said this so many times on our show, I, 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 you know, so just the claim that if you're going to take one of the traditions, you got to take them all. Really? Which ones? Which tradition? Yeah. What constitutes all? What constitutes, um, what constitutes any? Are you going to take Hasidic tradition? Are you going to take reform tradition? Are you going to take what, if you want to take Orthodox tradition, what flavor of Orthodox tradition are you taking now? The idea that there's a monolithic tradition within, within Judaism is simply ridiculous. Um, let's go back to his comment here. Uh, if a person submit to some, you have to take it all. That's one, yeah, ridiculous. Keepa and head coverings case in point. I'm still pondering what he, that is Dr. Brown said two years later and wonder why you both are always covering your head in these clips. If it is for non-religious reasons, I will accept it. But to say that is some cultural thing does sound somewhat superfluous. I, I copied and pasted this by the way. If you deny that the head covering from a Jewish perspective is a religious symbol, I would have to strongly disagree. Of course it's a religious symbol. That's why I wear it. I mean, we've talked about this so many times on this show. I, I don't think that uh, Rob is covering his head for religious purposes. The, uh, the, the, the baseball. Actually, my I got my hair cut yesterday, so it actually, I, yeah. I could probably go hatless now. If you ever yeah, see, if you, if like you, someone posted on, <laughs> so in that picture that you posted where there was wind and my hair's going, yeah. you know, on our cover, someone's like, now I see why Van Hop wears a hat. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, <laughs> I thought that was great. Uh, certainly, certainly Rob does not uh, wear a head covering for religious purposes. I wouldn't say that I wear a head covering for religious purposes in that I think that it's commanded of me or that I'm doing something wrong if I uncover my head. I wear a keepa every day, pretty much all day long, and uh, I always have. Sometimes I wear a hat on top of it. Um, but the the point for me is not uh, is not that I think God has commanded me to cover my head. I have associated, or I have I have connected myself to the God of Israel, and I want people to know that. Therefore, I associate myself with what is commonly seen as Israel. Take that for what it is. To use it for evangelical purposes. That is the main point of why I wear a head covering. Uh, I get asked 
almost on a daily basis why I cover my head or, you know, oh, are you Jewish? Oh, you know, I get into conversations constantly with Christians uh, about uh, being Jewish. I had a woman ask me last Sunday uh, where the nearest synagogue was. She had come over from uh, England. We chatted for a few minutes about where the synagogue was in Tacoma. Uh, and of course I steered her to, well, I told her there's really only the reform synagogue, but you can always come over to my, my congregation, which is messianic. And then we, <laughs> we had a little chat about that. Not too long, mind you. But the point is, is that no, there's nothing wrong with me wearing a kippah. You can't show me in the, in the Torah or anywhere else where it says that I shouldn't be wearing a kippah. You can't show me where tradition is bad. And you can't show me that, uh, just because I, I wear something on my head, I'm doing something wrong. Uh, this whole comment is just absolutely ridiculous. Okay. Before we go on, I hope that answers the question for Lewis. And actually, you know, it talks about, uh, or this conversation touches on what Yeshua talks about when he's, he's talking about traditions of, of men, traditions of the elders and, and, you know, not dissociating from Pharisees, right? It's not the believers in Yeshua that dissociate that like, left the synagogue. I mean, Yeshua says they got kicked out, right? And so it, that's the view of history that if you're taking Yeshua's word seriously, that that's the, the view that you have, not this, you know, parting of the ways where they slowly, you know, agree to disagree or whatever. I mean, that thing might have happened on a political kind of level later down the road. But initially, Disciples of Yeshua were, were kicked out. They were the minority group, and they didn't have any political power. And uh, But Yeshua didn't tell them to just uh, disconnect from those people. Uh, and, and But in so doing, he says, but you also have to, you, you can't be a hypocrite. Yeah. So, so in a way, learn what you can learn, but you're not one of them. Don't call them rabbi, right? Right there. That's a tough one for some people, you know. Um, learn from them. Do what they say, but don't do what they do. So that means there's something of value that the scribal and the Pharisaic tradition have pertaining to the teaching of the Torah. But we are to also uh, reflect on those teachings because uh, we have a rabbi, we have a, a master, and everything has to be filtered through his words. All Every thought we have has to be brought captive to Messiah. And so... He's not saying throw out the whole thing. I mean, just on a cultural level, even cultural. I mean, we use the Arabic numeral system, the one, two, three, four. That comes from Arabic. Does that mean now all of a sudden we have to all speak Arabic? Or we use the 360-degree uh, circle in mathematics, which we get from ancient Sumer, from the Sumerians in ancient Mesopotamia. But we don't speak Sumerian. We don't speak or any of the, you know, Akkadian or Babylonian. Look, uh, you know, but, we, but there's, mine, there's but, cultural but wait, things wait, that wait, are wait, valuable. Wait, 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 wait. I'll, I'll stop you there because, you know what, mine is, wearing a keeper for me is more specific. I'm obviously... Well, I'm talking even on a flesh and blood cross-cultural. Well, People take things that are valuable because because they 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 work. Okay, but my right? point... But, but, okay, but hang on just a sec. My point is this. I'm certainly trying to make a statement. I'm, tr I'm certainly trying to associate myself with the Jewish people and the God of Israel. That's what I'm trying to do. Most of the time I wear either a shirt or a sweatshirt that says Yeshua on it. So I got a keeper on and I got Yeshua right here. I'm, you know, I'm obviously trying to get people to uh, ask questions 
And I'm more than happy to answer those questions. And wearing a kippah is one of the things that I think shows that I am a, I'm in solidarity with the Jewish people. I've, I have associated myself, for, for Jewish people, I've associated myself as a Gentile to the God of Israel. For non-Jewish people, I'm a Jewish person who loves Yeshua. <laughs> I know, isn't that crazy? So, I mean, it goes, it goes every way. Okay, let's keep going. Uh, so much, so much, so much. Um, okay. Oh, and actually, speaking of tradition, <laughs> thank you, show notes. Um, I forgot to put this in the show notes, by the way, where we got this from. This uh, clip is pulled by Rob. Rob pulled this clip. Do you want to set this up or do I, should we play it first? Go ahead and play because it it's been a week or so. I don't remember. <laughs> Here we go. There's a third piece of evidence for the historicity of the resurrection, and that is the extraordinary changes in traditions. I talk about this in my book, How Can I Know the Extraordinary Changes in Tradition that Occurred Over a Short Amount of Time. Now remember, except for Luke, the New Testament writers were of what faith? They were Jewish, weren't they? They were Jewish. All of them were Jewish. And yet, I want you to notice how quickly these New Testament writers who were Jewish replaced the basic tenets of their Jewish faith with new beliefs. For example, they abandoned the sacrificial system that had been in place for 1,400 years, the animal sacrifices. They walked away from that. Secondly, they changed their day of worship from Saturday, the Sabbath, to Sunday, the resurrection day. Thirdly, they replaced the sign of their faith from circumcision to water baptism. And fourthly, they said the Mosaic law that we've been following for 1,400 years, no more. It's simply a shadow of a new covenant, a new revelation from Jesus Christ. So that was, oh golly, Caleb, I don't know if you can remember who that even was. I was listening, I was in the car and I was listening to a preacher and I, I caught the end of that sermon. I'm like, wow. <laughs> so this guy has a, I think it's called, I want to say victory for today or or passion for for not passion for truth, obviously. Passion for life. <laughs> I feel bad I didn't make a note of who the guy was. Um, but he's got a book out. He's got multi-audio series. Very well done in terms of web, website and user-friendly, you know, getting content. But what he's saying here really struck me um, because this is, this is the messaging that uh, many of us are up against yeah. in our larger family networks and community networks where you have people that – that this is kind of the party line. Um, and the questions we have to pause and say, okay, is what this preacher preaching in alignment with the apostolic writings? Is it in alignment with the scriptures as a whole? Or with history. Most of our listeners, or, or, most of our, yeah, or just good history. Most of our listeners would probably already agree with us, and they're going to they're gonna notice the same flags that, that caught my ear, you know, when, when I wanted us to play that clip. Um, but, he says it with such conviction yeah. <laughs> that, you know, and then you have it edited with a nice piano music because he's like, next time, you know, listen and we'll, we'll get into this. But the core piece is he says, well, what was their faith? Well, they were Jewish. Um, and he, he basically glosses over what we know about the late Second Temple period, you know, that there, were, there was a lot of stuff going on. It wasn't just so simple that, oh, they were, uh, yes, they were Jewish. And that Paul or, or that Luke is a Gentile, 
I'm not sure, you know, I'm not sure what people's arguments. I think they just, they read his tone and say, oh, it seems like Luke was a well-educated Gentile um, and that he wasn't Jewish. But in fact, I don't know if we can really know that Luke was not Jewish. It could be that all the books of the apostolic writings were written by Jews, including Luke and Acts. Um, but he says that they quickly abandoned things that had been uh, going on, and, and we could go one by one. The, I, one of the first ones was the, the sacrificial system. Well, we know from the book of Acts that what that guy said is, is not true. Um, and then he goes, he says they abandoned the Sabbath. Well, all through the book of Acts, they're going, they're keeping Shabbat. It says on, it says for, uh, what, 18 months, Paul was in Corinth teaching every Shabbat. You know, Acts 15, they're going to hear the Torah in, in, on Shabbat in the synagogue. So, um, it, and then finally, what was the, what was the last one? The, the last one, oh, that the law of Moses as a whole was, was done away. There, but, uh, so, uh, wait, hang on, just a second. I, I do, I do have to agree with the chat room. I think there is uh, specific reasons why scholars believe Luke was was a Gentile. I, I would have to look into it, but I'm pretty sure. I'm, I'm well, pretty I know sh- that they have they have reason they they have. Uh, well, you could say, is it reasons or is it they just have what they bring up as uh, hypothetical evidence? I mean, we, how how do we know? That Luke was was not Jewish by some by the way they by the way he wrote by the fact that he used oh it wasn't just the way, terminology yeah I uh, I'll, I'll look into it maybe it's uh, a discussion for for next week let me let me read just a, let me go back to Beckwith for just a second I, I want to read this because I think this is actually uh, this is just two paragraphs on on uh, his view of Jewish Jewish Christianity in Palestine in the in the uh, first century. Um, so, and this, I think is a pretty much a response to the clip that we just heard. And by the way, that man's name was Jeffries. Thank you. That we heard in the clip. Uh, the predominant characteristic of, this is a quote, by the way, uh, page 52, the predominant character characteristic of Jewish Christianity as it existed, especially in Palestine was the continuance of the literal observance of the Mosaic law alongside Christian beliefs and institutions. Thus circumcision was continued by the Jewish Christians alongside baptism. And he cites Acts 2, 38 through 41, 21, 20 and following, etc. And since they went on offering the temple sacrifices, Acts 21, 23 through 26, there's every reason to suppose that they continued the eating of the Passover sacrifice along the, alongside the celebration of the Lord's Supper. Also, we can infer from the practice of the non-Gnostic party among the Ebionites, an anti-Pauline Judaizing sect, which took its rise from among the Jewish Christians of Palestine, that they observed both the Sabbath and Sunday performing on the latter similar rites to those performed by other Christians. And Beckwith, I, yeah, I, <laughs> I think right. he, he just totally contradicts what that guy said. And, um, and I have, I, I don't know if I shared this one before. This is a new book by Dr. Drew Johnson, Knowledge by Ritual. Um, excellent book, Journal of Theological Interpretation Supplement number 13. He is getting into a ritual in the early church, and he, this is, so this book came out 2017, I believe, it's brand new. Um, Unless I have reasons to suspect otherwise, silence concerning Torah ritual practices will be considered as a possible indication of continuity. In other words, that they were, keep, they, they kept doing the Torah. I will not presume the absence of Torah rituals, as when he's looking at, uh, 
early believers as first century Jews. Um, so that, I think that's just super important that the, the teacher that we just listened to, Jeffries or Jeffers or whatever, um, he's, he's kind of, it's like the books he's reading were written in like the 50s and 60s and 70s, maybe, maybe even into the 80s. But it's a, and you could find that today too, but it's, it's a real smaller segment of the larger uh, kind of scholarly treatments. You know, the new perspective of Paul, sure. they call it, you know, and things like that are still, there's still uh, fuzziness or noise around this idea of, uh, of what it was. Well, Paul, you know, some say that, Torah, that Paul was preaching a Torah-free gospel. And then later there, you know, you see in the more recent stuff, they're modifying, saying, no, it wasn't Torah-free. He did have commandments, but he was definitely preserving a distinction between Jews and, and Gentiles, and he didn't want them, uh, you know, mixing, you know, and this sort of thing. Um, so the conversation continues. But this was just an example of what a person's going to hear. They're driving, they're listening, going through the radio stations, listening to preachers. And this kind of stuff is just being put out there into the airwaves for people to listen. And, and what does it take for the listener to, to go, wait a minute, that doesn't sound right. What does it take? It means that they need to know their Bible pretty well. Yeah, exactly. Right? If they don't know their Bible well enough, they're going to trust that the guy they're listening to, well, he must know. I mean, he's on the radio and he's got this great website and he's, given, he's got a book. Um, so are they reading the Bible for themselves? Can they interact uh, in a critical manner, not to not to say the guy's horrible or anything like that, but just say, wait a minute, what he just said doesn't click with the scriptures. Uh, you know, I misrepresented uh, the chat room, uh, uh, and I and I do apologize for this. I misread your uh, your statement, Philip, and I will clarify it now. Uh, Philip was uh, actually agreeing with you, Rob, not with with what I was saying. I, oh. he, he says I feel there is sufficient evidence to suggest Luke was Jewish. Well, uh, that's a great. Uh, I, I'd like to see what you have there, Philip. Um, here's one thing: is that if he's Gentile, if we just were assuming he's a Gentile, boy, he really interviewed a lot of Jews. I mean, he knew a <laughs> lot about. He knew everything is anchored in the Torah. You know, he starts off with the story of the sons of Aaron, son and daughter of Aaron, who are married. You know, and have John the Baptist, right? I mean, it's all about the priesthood. Then he. You know, knowing about uh, Mary and and the poetry of the of when the Holy Spirit comes on them, you know, and so on and so forth. It's just, from there to the very end. It um, one thing that is clear, you know, if we can't say for sure he's Jew or Gentile, which uh, I think we can't, uh, is that he's clear. Luke is clear that Jews and Gentiles are worshiping together. They're keeping feasts together. They're they're keeping. Passover, they're keeping well, unleavened they, bread. It, sh it shows uh, it shows my ignorance on the subject. I haven't studied. Uh, you know, honestly, it's not really to me. It doesn't really matter, and I don't think it really mattered well, to, no, I get it. to, any, yeah, to anyone right. else. So I haven't I haven't studied it out sufficiently. Um, maybe it's maybe it's something worth looking at. Anyway, okay, I want to move on though. In uh, sorry to rush, uh, be, but uh, I we have to get to this uh, to this uh, question. This was uh, written in by uh, someone named Bethany. Uh, she says, uh, I'm struggling to have any educated response to refute the claim Yeshua was calling himself a false prophet. Quote, anyone have the, uh, and she, now she, I think she's posting in this comment a Facebook 
comment itself. Anyone have the answer to this? Mark uh, 14, 27 through 28 attempts to show Jesus fulfilling a verse in Zechariah 13, 7. I, God, will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. Jesus attributes himself as being the shepherd that God will kill. But don't worry, then I, Jesus, will arise. And uh, the arise part is not in Zechariah or anywhere in Torah, by the way. Actually, it's in the Septuagint. Ironically, Mark seems oblivious to the context of that verse. The reason the shepherd would be killed was because he will be a false prophet who will speak lies in the name of God, Zechariah 13.3. So essentially, according to Mark, Jesus identifies himself as the false prophet referenced in Zechariah. Hoping this is something you know the answer to or may be able to discuss on your show. Okay. Um, Here's one thing that I'm starting to realize about uh, Jewish objections to Jesus or uh, especially the anti-missionaries. They don't read their own literature. And this is a perfect example why or where they're not reading their own literature. Let's go look at both. Now, uh, Mark is not the only place that references this either. Um, this uh, This is paralleled in Matthew as well. Let's take a look. Mark 14, 27 through 28 says, And Jesus said to them, You will all fall away. Because it is written, I will strike down the shepherd, and the sheep shall be scattered. But after I have been raised, I will go ahead of you to Galilee. Matthew 26, 31 says, Then Jesus said to them, You will all fall away because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike down the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock shall be scattered. Okay. So first of all, let's go uh, straight to the the uh, the place that Yeshua is quoting, which is Zechariah. Now, he's quoting Zechariah thirteen seven. We'll get to that in just a few seconds, but I think it's important to start earlier. We have to start. And by the way, Rob, you can jump in at any time here, but I want to get these uh, these uh, references out of the way uh, so that our audience knows a little bit about what's going on in this in this passage. And we need to start all the way back in Zechariah twelve. And to do that, we will start back, Zechariah twelve ten. I will pour out on the uh, house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and the supplication and of supplications, so that they will look on me whom they have pierced, and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only son, and they will weep bitterly over him like the bitter weeping over a firstborn. In that day there will be great mourning in Jerusalem, like the mourning of Hadadrimon in the plain of Megiddo. The land will mourn every family by itself. In that day, a fountain will be opened for the house of David and for the inhabitants of Jerusalem for sin and for impurity. Okay, so uh, then he goes on to list everyone who will uh, mourn. And so let's uh, keep going. Now we're going to go to Zechariah 13.1. And this is uh, 13.1 through 6, I believe. Uh, He says... It will come about in that day, declares the Lord of hosts, that I will cut off the, na- the names of the idols from the land, and they will no longer be remembered. And I will also remove the prophets and the unclean spirit from the land. And if anyone still prophesies, then his father and mother who gave birth to him will say to him, You shall not live, for you have spoken falsely in the name of the Lord. And his father and mother who gave birth to him will pierce him through when he prophesies. Also, it will come about in that day that the prophets will each be ashamed of his vision when he prophesies and they will not put on a hairy robe in order to deceive. But he will say, I am not a prophet. I am a tiller of the ground for a man. uh, For a man sold me as a slave in my youth 
and one will say to him, what are these wounds between your arms? Then he will say, those with which I was wounded in the house of my friends. Now, 13.7, and this is the verse in question. Awake, O sword, against my shepherd. He's switched back now to 12, to, to the same shepherd in 12, right? And against the man, my associate, my associate declares the Lord of hosts. Strike the shepherd that the sheep may be scattered, and I will turn my hand against the little ones. Okay, so it's not just enough for me to say, oh, it's talking about the shepherd in 12, which it obviously is. But nonetheless, let's see what Judaism throughout the ages has said. Anything to add right now, Rob? Well, just the, the idea of that Yeshua used this verse to talk about himself mm-hmm. is important because on one hand, he understands that he is the Lord's shepherd, right? He is the, the shepherd. He is the one. He is the associate, if you want to call it, use that in Zechariah's terms. But he knows that he's going to get struck. Yeah. But it doesn't dissuade him from from doing it. He's, he's, I mean, we know what happens in the garden, right? He's, he's, he is, uh, his soul basically is sorrowful unto death. I mean, and, and, and so he knows that he is going to experience the wrath, right? Because, uh, because of sin. And he also knows that the sheep are going to be scattered and these sheep here, he's talking about his, his disciples and his disciples even Peter is saying, I'll never, I'll never betray you. But Yeshua is going to find himself alone, and, and they are going to scatter. But that's not the beautiful thing is, you know, and with the resurrection, is that we know that this, this wasn't the end of the story. But it, uh, even though now we know it wasn't the end of the story, it, it doesn't detract from the weight uh, of Yeshua's suffering, you know, and, and understanding what is going to happen to him. But he doesn't open his mouth. He doesn't flinch. He he continues to show love and truth in spite of knowing what is uh, coming down. Um, so that's just a, a powerful point on that. And I think you're going to talk about the, the verses used in the Dead Sea Scrolls in a messianic kind of way too, right? Well, yeah. Okay. So so uh, you know, the, if you look in Christian com- commentaries and and at uh, uh, basically, the the Christian scholars are going to tell you. Well, obviously, it's talking about the shepherd. You know, it's talking about the one who's pierced through in twelve that everyone's going to mourn, right? Uh, he's pierced through, and and everyone mourns it. And then, uh, you know, in in thirteen seven, it's talking about him being struck. Um, and so that's the Christian side of it. What's interesting is that who whoever wrote the this comment, whether it's an anti missionary or just a, a Jewish person who uh, is unfamiliar with Jewish tradition, that's exactly what they're doing. They're not reading their own Jewish tradition. Let's look at what the Jewish tradition is. In the Dead Sea Scrolls, we have this clearly as a messianic passage. Quote, when the oracle of the prophet Zechariah comes true, O sword, be lively and smite my shepherd and the man loyal to me, so says God, if you strike down the shepherd, the flock will scatter. Then I will turn my power against the little ones, Zechariah 13.7. But those who give heed to God are the poor of the flock, Zechariah 11.7. They will escape in the time of punishment, but all the rest will be handed over to the sword when the Messiah of Aaron and and of Israel comes. So obviously they're associating, uh, uh, they're putting a messianic flavor 
onto this verse specifically. Now, let's go uh, now to the Talmud. The Talmud is going to associate uh, Zechariah 12.10. Now, I understand, bear with me for a second. I understand that this is not uh, referenced specifically to Zechariah 13.7, but I want to, we'll get there. The Babylonian Talmud in Sukkot 52a on Zechariah 12.10 says this, what was the reason for the mourning, which references the, uh, is made in Zechariah's statement? Rabbi Dosa and rabbis uh, and rabbis differed on this matter. One said, it is on account of the Messiah, the son of Joseph, who was killed. And the other said, it is on account of the evil inclination which was killed. Okay, so the first one sa- says it was on uh, the, the Messiah, the son of Joseph. Now, in the view of him who said, it is on account of the Messiah, the son of Joseph, who was killed, we can make sense of the following verse of scripture, and they shall look on me because they have thrust him through, and they shall mourn for him as one mourns for his only son. Okay, so this obviously is uh, is not about 13.7, but about Zechariah 12.10. But if we look now in the Mikra Od Gedulot on Zechariah 13.7, guess what? It, the Mikra Ot Gedolot uh, specifically att- says that this is about the Messiah. And uh, instead of just uh, grabbing that passage, I went to, and by the way, this is on my bookshelf, and I don't understand why it wouldn't be on any uh, Orthodox Jews or, or uh, you know, any follower of the Torah who, uh, who, who's trying to make an argument against Christianity. Why wouldn't you have this book? It's Art Scroll on the Prophets. Just get an art scroll with the commentary from the rabbis on the prophets. And so they even quote Mikra Ot Gedolot on Zechariah 13.7. So this is just, I mean, honestly, the, the argument that is put forward here is, is really just a lack of, of even trying to look at, uh, at what the rabbis say about this. Or they think that the Christians don't know enough to go look. And maybe that, that is the case. This is what art scroll says. Uh, says the prophet foretells that many wars will break out among the nations of the world during the era of Mashiach ben Yosef. That's by Ibn Ezra. God's shepherd, shepherds and colleagues are the non-Jewish kings and leaders to whom he entrusted the, the fate of his flock, Israel. When they harm instead of help, God will unleash the sword against them. <clears throat> That's Rashi. Strike the shepherd and let the flock disperse. Israel, the flock, will then be free to scatter, and God will turn his vengeance against the subordinates of those kings, Mahari Kara. Alternatively, the flock is referred to the rulers. When the kings are slain, their their subordinate rulers will scatter. That's in Targum Yonasan. Okay. So... uh, the point, my point is, is that no, thirteen seven is obvious, obviously referring back to uh, the 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 uh, figure that we see in Zechariah twelve ten, which the rabbis throughout history have a, have attributed as being the Messiah. We see it in the Dead, Dead Sea Scrolls. We see it in Ibn Ezra, right? And we see in the Talmud itself that the that the figure in twelve ten is the the Messiah. We do have some. We do have a, a, a David Kimchi who who is post Ibn Ezra. He argues that it is. He says Melech Romi Harasha'a. He the 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 evil Roman king. 
is yeah, the one being uh, talked about. So, so you do have the dispute that do, in the Middle Ages, there is this argument about that's it. That's in the Art Scroll tool. I should have grabbed it. I was debating whether or not it was a little bit longer, and they talk about he originally said this, but they changed it to Rome and all this kind of stuff. Um, so I didn't know if that was really uh, pertinent to the idea of, of this being the Messiah. But my only point is, is that r the rabbis themselves at least some of the rabbis themselves throughout history, all the way back into the Dead Sea Scroll era. So all the way back before the first century, we see 13.7 being uh, said that by non-believers in Yeshua saying that this is the Messiah. So to say that this is actually, uh, that 13.7 is talking about the same prophets that are falsely speaking in 1 through 6 of 13, is simply not doing justice to the 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 sages of the of the Jewish people, and so I mean I think I think it's obvious that this is referring back to Zechariah twelve ten. Anything else on that, Rob? No, I'm just kind of looking through uh, some of the commentary. So um, I don't see the Ibn Ezra one, I'm, but I'm looking at one version of the Mikro Gedolot that has. Ezra's, Ibn Ezra's commentary on it. Um, but that's it's not a big deal. Anyway, I, you know, what, uh, and Here, I know. Here's what you have to realize. Here's what you have to realize. The earliest readings, the earliest teachings concerning that scripture that we have in Jewish history yeah. are equating it to, to the Messiah. And we have known polemics of later in the in the Babylonian Talmud and beyond of going back and the rabbi saying no that no and they're trying to uh, undo the gospel going out they're saying no it doesn't mean that no it doesn't mean that no it doesn't mean that so there's this defensiveness inherent that in a lot of the rabbinic literature over passages that that are anchored in the gospels and they're wanting to say no it doesn't mean that just like I mean we had the same discussion with Isaiah 53 Right, I, basically, a rabbi could go, modern Orthodox rabbi could go through the Gospel of Matthew, and they're going to say, "Oh, well, he's." They go to each time that there's a prophet quoted, and they're oh, totally misreading that, because the Talmud tells us that it's something else. Well, okay, right? let's let yeah, and and I know that uh, the last time, I, pe but people, yeah, the last time, the last time I quoted a uh, uh, rabbis, I, in other words, I quoted the rabbis to show that uh, that the anti missionaries weren't being. Uh, even honest with their own sages. I got all these people emailing me saying, I can't believe that you agree with the sages. Take the sages out of it at this point. My personal opinion, all you have to do is read the text. You know, in, in, uh, tw in 12, 10 through, through 12, he says, uh, they will look on me whom they have pierced and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an, uh, for an only son. And they will weep bitterly for him like bitter weeping over the firstborn. Okay, so obviously this is, God talking about, you know, uh, that, that Israel is going to mourn over this person, right? He switches gears in 13. And uh, now I'd have to look at the Hebrew, but I'm pretty, I'm pretty certain. I've, I've read this. I've skimmed over this in the Hebrew before. Um, my Hebrew is atrocious compared to like Rob's, but I would have to, I'd have to look again. I'm pretty sure that, that this is translated right though. Um, he says that I will cut off the names of the idols from the land and that they will no longer be remembered. And I will also remove the prophets and the unclean spirit from the land. And if anyone still pro prophesies, 
than his father. So now he's projecting to these evil people. Now, when we get down here into uh, seven, Awako sword against my shepherd. So are the people who are claiming this saying that the false prophets and the idols in one in 13, one through six are God's shepherd? I mean, how does that make sense? And against the man, my associate. So are they saying that the false prophets and the idols are God's associate? Declares the Lord's, Lord of hosts. Strike the shepherd and the sheep may be, that the sheep may be scattered. In a way, in a way, if, if someone's going to say, oh, like with, like, you know, I found it's in Rashi too, Rashi and, and Radok, saying this is a, the, strike the shepherd, that this is the evil king of Rome. Um, one of the one of the things you have to realize is that even if it's going to be, if 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 this shepherd that's being struck, yeah, be, is evil. It is true that Yeshua had all the sin. He it says he knew no sin, but he he became sin for us. It doesn't mean he sinned, but it means all the sins of the. Uh, that he paid for were were on him. You can take that as a midrash, but I honestly don't see that this passage reading that way. Do you? That's not what Yeshua means when he he says strike the shepherd and the right. He well, that's yeah, and I I just don't see that this passage is reading that way. If you only were to take uh, thirteen one through seven, I can understand how you might get confused on it, but you can't. I mean, you got to read Zechariah in its totality. The, the, you know the, the chapter and verse mark, mark markings weren't you know that's a that's a late invention to help to, to try to help us which which it does right for memorization for reference all those but kind of just things. but but if we go back to the Hebrew Caleb like yours because I have it here in front of me mm-hmm. the in verse uh, verse Zion which is seven Cherev Uri so sword wake up Al Roi Upon my shepherd or against my shepherd, the algever amiti, uh, and against, and now this is a uh, probably uh, exegetical. In other words, this is it means it's not two different things. The gever amiti is the same as the roi. That is against the 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 man, my associate, the neum Hashem tzevaot says the Lord, smite, smite the shepherd. shepherd, and it says, it's got to be talking about the roi, just in that verse. It's talking about the, the one who the Lord is saying is my shepherd. And that's my point, but that's my yeah, point. just in the verse in and of itself. The, yeah, and that's my point, though. If, you, if you're reading uh, that the roi... And then, and then what is Yeshua saying about himself then? If he's saying that he's the haroe in the middle of the verse, then he's saying that he's also that the roe and the gever amiti, right? Yeah. yeah. Which is that puts us into this. What do you mean you're the, that's blasphemy? You're saying you're you're uh, you're saying you're the Lord. You're saying you're God, right? Yeah, exactly. It's a tough, it's a, there's there's no question that this, this passage. Zechariah as a whole, I mean, a couple weeks ago in the three-year cycle, uh, Ariel Berkowitz did a great uh, unpacking of chapter five, uh, 
And which can be heard on Torah Resource Radio, by the way. Yeah. And it's like, wow, it's not easy. Just, you know, Zechariah is a tough text. It's The visions are very symbolic. There's a lot going on. Um, it's, one, so, it, it's, it's quite possibly, uh, it, it, I think it's probably tied as my favorite book in, in the whole Tanakh. Tied with Deuteronomy, I love Deuteronomy and the, and the structure yeah. of Deuteronomy. But, but, uh, but Zechariah is just oh man, it is so rich and and just so much fun to read, and especially if you have uh, someone guiding you through like uh, you know a good commentary or something to help kind of uh, explain some things. I'm not smart enough to read it by myself and get it, <laughs> mm-hmm. you know. So I have to I have to rely on on good scholars who have gone. Uh, before me and and uh, understand things much better than me. I have a book uh, which was a present uh, a present from uh, a good friend, Larue Miller. Uh, Larue Mil- Miller knew that I uh, was quite fond of Meredith Klein, Doctor Meredith Klein, before he passed. And uh, Meredith Klein did a dynamite dynamite work on Zachariah, which I didn't realize until she presented me with uh, with his his book on Zachariah. At a conference that I was at, which was a, a true blessing. All right, anything else before we go, man? We got we got uh, uh, some nope. some new faces in the uh, in the chat room. Good to see Ben Juan there. Yeah. All right. How does the how does the Facebook stream seem to be working? Or uh, sorry, YouTube. YouTube stream. Everybody says that it's good. Is my voice? Are our voices still synced with uh, with our video? For those watching online. Uh, some people said that they're actually watching us on a big screen. I, I can't imagine. <laughs> I can't imagine why. Um, yeah. So send us emails and let us know how you uh, like the uh, like the setup on on uh, YouTube. Um, whether or not it's better or worse or whatever. Uh, and uh, Gary says voices and video are very good. Okay. Um, yeah. So I hope that this has been enlightening for uh, for everyone. We sure did have fun last week, and it's always hard to follow up a good show, a great show like uh, you know, like a interview with Dr. Petrie uh, with another show, you know, like because how are you going to top that? How are you going to how are you going to get better than that? Uh, so, anyway, yeah, we hope that we hope that uh, you had fun with this one. Anyway, we're going to keep trying to get our uh, our audio and our video uh, even better, and uh, I think that YouTube will probably be the way that we end up going. And thanks for everybody in the chat room. Next week, who knows what we're going to talk about, but uh, we hope that you'll help us. You can do that several ways. Give us a call. Call us uh, at our our comment line, 253-465-3205. It's 253-465-3205. You can also send us an email, chag at torahresource.com. Let us know what you think. And uh, yeah, I mean, we're we're always open to hear uh, comments on what we've talked about and also uh, new comment or a new uh, show content is another thing that we're always looking for as well. And uh, yeah, we're thinking about doing a call-in show once a month. That could be scary. Anyway, we hope that this conversation, if nothing else, has done one thing. That's glorify our great God and Savior, Yeshua, the Messiah. <laughs>